Well, good morning. If you're new with us, my name's Tim, and that was a clip from the film Crazy Rich Asians. Uh, I don't know if you've seen this film yet. I'm not actually, I'm not much of a romantic comedy kind of guy. In fact, I still occasionally get shivers when I think about that time that two of our friends convinced Tracy and I to watch The Notebook with them. Um, It's two hours. I will never get back. Um... So I'm, I'm not a big romantic comedy guy, but, but I did really enjoy this film. And uh, you see in this uh, the, the main character, uh, Rachel Chu, played by Constance Wu. And Rachel is an NYU professor of economics, and she is dating Nick Young, who prior to her trip back with Nick to visit his family in Singapore is unaware of the fact that Nick is heir to a fortune, billions of dollars. And she enters into this world of all of these wealthy people, and she realized quickly that she's not like them. And one of the themes, part of why I like this movie is because, yes, there's all of the like, romantic comedy stuff, but there's layers. There's, there's also themes about uh, family, wealth, and the role it plays in our lives, and belonging. And you see here between, uh, again, Rachel and, uh, and Eleanor, who play, who's played by Michelle Yeoh, uh, who is Nick's mom. This is the primary conflict in the film. And you see this theme of belonging. And her sense, Eleanor's sense, that she never quite belonged. And the way in which she's now communicating to Rachel that you will never be enough. You will never belong. Even though Nick is the one who brings her here and he's in love with her, she's not like them. Well, we are beginning our, a new series, our, kind of our vision series for the year that we're really excited about. And, and we're calling it Building a Bigger Table. And this is it, it's really informing how, as, as we've thought and prayed about 2019 and where we feel like God is leading us as a community, this is the thread that's kind of run through all of that, how we feel like God is leading us, what God is doing in us uh, this year. So we're excited about this. Uh, as, as Andrew mentioned, we're going to have our Envision uh, next week where we're going to look through some of, uh, reflect a little bit on what God has done in 2018 and look ahead to 2019. And it's part of this, it's part of this series intentionally because all of this weaves together. And it's rooted in one of the stories that Jesus tells about the kingdom of God, about what it's like <clears throat> excuse me, to live with God as king, to live a life in which we are living in relationship with our creator and in right relationship with others. So we're going to explore that parable together. Um, to begin, a little bit of context. Uh, we're going to be looking at Luke's gospel. Luke is the, the third gospel that you come to, uh, the third biography of Jesus in the New Testament. And we're going to look in Luke 14. And, and in this story, Jesus has been invited into the home of some prominent religious leaders, Pharisees, people who, who teach and interpret the law for his people. And as he comes, he notices, these are kind of like the gatekeepers of the community. So it would have been traditional, Jesus was a bit of a traveling teacher, so he went around to different villages and taught them about God. And it would have been very normal culturally for these gatekeepers, these religious leaders, to invite the traveling teacher in and kind of, you know, vet him and make sure that the things that are being taught are appropriate. And so Jesus gets invited into this space, into this person's house. 
And while he's there, he notices that a standard cultural practice is taking place, and that's simply when you would be invited to a home, typically how uh, the the tables would have been arranged, the the host would have sat at the center, and those closest to the host would have been the most honored guests. And then the further away you got, the more you realize kind of where you were in the pecking order, right? So that was just kind of normal. So Jesus notices this, and he says something about it breaking convention, because everyone kind of knows this is how things go. But Jesus says this in Luke 14, chapter 12 to 14. He says, when you give a luncheon or dinner, do not invite your friends, your brothers or sisters, your relatives, your rich neighbors. If you do, they may invite you back, and so you will be repaid. But when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed. Although they cannot repay you, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous." So they'd intended to kind of quiz Jesus, and Jesus ends up kind of being the teacher in this scenario, where they they thought they had the the authority, the power in this situation. Jesus kind of flips it on on its head, and he says, you know, I know this is how things go, but I want you to think about this differently. Don't invite people to the banquet who you know are going to repay you. Invite those who can't. And you'll get repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. Now this idea of the resurrection of the righteous, this was kind of this Jewish sense of a someday period, a messianic age when God would make all things new. And the way that God would do that is by raising up a leader who would, in their minds, conquer Israel's enemies and restore Israel to its rightful place. So he says this, and it invokes a response from one of the listeners. There's a, a, one of the teachers of the law is listening, and Luke tells us that in verse 15, when one of those at the table with him heard this, he said to Jesus, blessed is the one who will eat at the feast in the kingdom of God. So kind of this random, like, you know, just statement that he makes in the midst of this. Now, without any cultural context, that's a little confusing, like, what brought that on? Why would he say that? Well, it, it turns out, according at least to scholar Kenneth Bailey, um, that this was a common challenge. This was a way of kind of challenging the teacher by bringing up this theological idea. So, so this teacher, this, this religious leader, says, blessed is the one who will eat at the feast of the kingdom of God. Kind of challenging Jesus to comment on what this one-day messianic period would be like. What's, it, what's, your, what, what's your view on that day? You talked about the resurrection of the righteous. What do you think that's going to be? Is basically what he's asking Jesus. And in the common Jewish kind of mindset, they saw this as a banquet, as a, one day a banquet that God would have for all of those who would join him when he makes all things new. And that's rooted in, in the Old Testament in some of the prophets and things that they said about this coming age. Specifically, uh, one of the earliest passages we see it in is uh, the prophet Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 25. Isaiah talks about this someday when God will restore all things and have a banquet, a feast for everyone. Isaiah says this, beginning in verse 6, on this mountain, and this mountain typically refers to Jerusalem, uh, the, the capital city, the, the kind of the, the center of the, the world of the the Israelites. 
On this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats, and the finest of wines. On this mountain, he will destroy the shroud that enfolds all peoples, the sheet that covers all nations. He will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. He will remove his people's disgrace from all the earth. The Lord has spoken. In that day, they will say, surely this is our God. We trusted in him and he saved us. This is the Lord. We trusted in him. Let us rejoice and be glad in his salvation. So this prophet, Isaiah, he looks ahead to this coming age, this banquet, and he says this is actually going to be a time when, when all nations will come. That what God is doing in this time, God is doing for all people. Yes, it's, it's through the people of Israel, but it's for everyone. This is a banquet where everyone will join. Well, curious things happen when you give them time. Um, And over time, uh, scholars would look at these writings and translate them. And and translation is also always kind of this exercise in kind of culture. You can't can't translate something from one language to the next or, or from one time period to the next without in some way kind of imposing your ideas on it or at least it's really difficult to do that. And so over the years, as people would kind of translate this text, they would do so in a way that kind of projected their sensibilities, their understanding of what, what these texts really meant. So when this text was translated from Hebrew, which is what it was originally written in, to Aramaic, which is what the people of Jesus' time typically spoke, kind of the common language, it was done so with some translation, with some filtering of, well, we really think this is what the prophet is saying. We're sure this is his real intent, and so we're going to get to the meaning of it, but we're going to extrapolate a little bit so people can really understand. And so there was this translation in Aramaic that was called the Targum. Um, and, and again, it was just kind of a common language translation. But here's how that translation reads the passage that I just read to you. This is from the Targum. And it says, Yahweh of hosts will make for all the peoples in this mountain a meal. And although they suppose it is an honor, it will be a shame for them. And great plagues, plagues from which they will be unable to escape, plagues whereby they will come to their end. Well, that's just a little bit different, isn't it? Did you notice the shift? It's not even subtle, but I recognize you don't have them both in front of you. You go from Isaiah's vision, which is God throws this banquet and all people are invited, to this translation that has been done by by people who genuinely are trying to help their fellow folks understand what the scriptures are saying. And yet the translation comes out, it's actually this kind of Uh, this kind of ironic thing that God is inviting all of these people to the banquet. Yes, all the nations are going to come to the banquet, but (laughs) it's because they're going to get plagues. (laughs) It's going to be awesome, right? Like, somehow we go from what God is doing, God is doing for all people, to yes, God is doing it for all people, but it's really going to stink for people who aren't us. It, it wasn't necessarily intentional, but their own, their own biases and sensibilities changed, in fact, what, 
what the text was saying, what the scripture was saying. Because everyone knew that Yahweh, God, preferred Jewish folks over others. Obviously. So Jesus, at this point, decides to tell a story. And this is one of the great things about how Jesus teaches is he doesn't just tell people that's a really stupid idea. He invites them to discover for themselves how stupid of an idea it is. And so Jesus tells a story out of Luke chapter 14. Immediately following this guy's statement when he says, blessed are those who will eat at the feast in the kingdom of God, we pick up in verse 16, Jesus says this. Jesus replied, A certain man was preparing a great banquet and invited many guests. At the time of the banquet, he sent his servant to tell those who had been invited, Come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said, I've just bought a field, and I must go and see it. Please excuse me. Another said, I've just bought five yoke of oxen, and I'm on my way to try them out. Please excuse me. Still another said, I just got married, so I can't come. The servant came back and reported this to his master. Then the owner of the house became angry and ordered his servant, go out quickly into the streets and alleys of the town and bring the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. Sir, the servant said, what you have ordered has been done, but there is still room. Then the master told his servant, go out to the roads and country lanes and compel them to come in so that my house will be full. I tell you, not one of those who were invited will get a taste of my banquet. Now, because we're going to spend a couple of weeks kind of Peeling, this, peeling out the layers of this. Uh, this morning, I want to really focus on one aspect of this, and that's the party planner, the, the host of this event. Jesus tells this story, remember, in response to a question or a comment about the kingdom of God and what the kingdom of God is like. And in this parable, we discover something that's true and important about the thrower of the party, the, the planner of the party. And as you probably know, who plans the party has a big effect on what the party is like. I mean, think about, you, you probably went to at least maybe one gathering. I don't maybe we didn't all go to parties. Some of you probably went to several parties over the holidays. Um, but what the party is like, what you experience when you go, is largely about who plans it, who's the host. I mean, is there music? Are there games? Is it like a high energy, is it mellow, kind of conversational? Much of that is determined by the character of who is hosting it, who's throwing the party. So when Jesus tells us about this party, we, we kind of zone in on what, what's the party like and what does that tell us about the host? Well, the first thing we discover is it's a feast, right? It's, it's this big banquet that has likely taken him days, weeks even, maybe a month to prepare. I mean, this isn't just, hey, run out to Costco and get a whole bunch of stuff. This is slaughter the animals, like let's, let's prepare, like, you know, crush the grain and we'll make the bread. And, 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 I mean, this is, this is a lot of time and energy put into this. And, and you know if you've attended a party that has been planned really well, Right? Now, whether it's, whether it's a wedding reception or maybe a company party or just a party thrown by a friend, the ones that you know people have spent a lot of time in, I mean, you can really sense it. You, you sense it in, in the little details, 
the, the food that's offered, the drink that's offered, whether or not they provided gluten-free options for people or dairy-free options. Or right, They thought about those who were coming and what they might need and, and how to make it the best experience. All of those things take time and energy. And if you've ever planned a party at your home, you know it's not just, I mean, for the most part, unless you're me, but for most of us, you don't wake up in the morning and go, oh, I should get stuff for the party, right? Like you're spending time planning and preparing. You're trying to figure out, you're sending out the evite to kind of get a sense of how many people are going to come so you can prep and have enough food and drink and all that stuff. And, and you see that this this host does all of that. He he plans and prepares and spends lots of time and energy and probably enjoys thinking about how much fun everyone's going to have when they come and they have, they they hang out at his party. It's going to be so cool. And and we're not going to spend a lot of time talking about the guests. Uh, We're going to get into that in a couple of weeks, but but suffice it to say that this is an RSVP event and so he's expecting that he knows who's going to be there, so he's preparing enough food for who's going to be there. And then it's finally ready, and he sends out the announcement, hey, it's already come. And people are like, meh, there's something else that came up. And in a shame-based culture, this isn't just disappointing. It's offensive. It's a, a public affront to this person who has spent so much time and energy preparing and planning. And so what does the host do? Well, he does what anybody would do in this situation. He gets angry. I mean, I don't know about you. If I went out and I bought all of this stuff and I spent all this time making it and getting ready and uh, people had, you know, they confirmed via Evite they were coming, so I got all that stuff ready and then all of a sudden everyone who said they were coming is like, yeah, something came up. I'd be pretty missed. Can't eat all this by myself. He gets angry. And so how does he respond? He's a wealthy guy, obviously. And so what we might think he would do is get some of his, you know, kind of hired hands and send them out to, you know, break a few ankles or warn people not to do this again. But he doesn't. This host transforms his anger into grace. He takes this affront, this offense, that rightly causes him anger, and he transforms it into grace. So instead of retaliating against those who have offended him, instead he sends out his servants to get the poor, the lame, the crippled, the blind. Note, these are the same folks that he told the... uh, the Pharisees, hey, next time you have a party, include these folks. The master takes his anger and changes it into a gift for those who otherwise might not have been invited. So the poor, the lame, the blind, the, blind, the crippled, they come, and there's still room. And so then what? So then he's like, hey, you know what? Go out into the roads and the country lanes. And again, according to Bailey, this has long been affirmed that this third round of guests, the the roads and the country lanes folks, that that what this is symbolic of is Gentiles, non-Jews, people who lived outside of Israel. And so not only is it those within, like those Jewish people who maybe we tend to look at as like, ah, God clearly doesn't like them very much because their life kind of stinks. So they're invited. And now it's the, oh, it's the pagans. 
It's those outside of the people of God. Those people. They get invited. Now think about this in the context of what they assumed was going to happen at the banquet, right? They assumed this was going to be this place where the the nations come in and then they get slaughtered. But Jesus kind of flips it. The nations come in and they get fed. They have a party. And the insiders are, are left on the outside, settling for something else, something less. The character of the host is one who responds to offense with unspeakable grace. He channels grotesque, horrible brokenness into gracious, giving love. This is what the host is like. I was thinking about this... um, And, and I happened to see an interview with Bill Gates and Jimmy Fallon. Uh, now, I, I don't know if you follow much about what uh, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation is doing. They're doing a, a lot of amazing stuff in the world. Uh, you're probably not following it, because who does that? But they are. They're, they're, they're doing some amazing stuff. And, and he was on Fallon talking a little bit about a, a one project that they're doing right now. It's, it's called an omniprocessor. <coughs> now, what this is, is uh, Gates looked out in the world and, and realized that there, there were two kind of big issues, or two of the largest issues, were poor sanitation. Uh, people didn't have appropriate like sewage to get rid of their waste, and not, no access to clean drinking water. That these were two really big issues in the world. And so uh, the Gates uh, kind of commissioned a group of engineers, and they said, hey, can you figure out how, something that will solve the poop problem and the water problem? Go. And so these engineers worked their magic and came back with what they call an omniprocessor. And what this is, is it's a toilet that literally takes the poop and turns it into water that you can drink, like magic. I don't know if there's fairies in the toilet. I'm not exactly sure how that process works, but somehow... And, and what you're seeing here is a little taste test that they did. Uh, if you have a, a minute and you want to look up the clip, it's, it's pretty hilarious. But um, to try and figure out which is the poop water and which is the tap water. And, uh, and it turns out at the end, they're both poop water. Uh, sorry, that's a little bit of a spoiler there. But <clears throat> the point is, they were able to come up with this way to take what is worthless, in fact, what's destructive, unprocessed sewage, and transform it into something that's life-giving. It was remarkable. And I think this is a pretty amazing analogy for what it is that God is like and what it is that God does. That he takes our poop, he takes the, the stuff that's not just disappointing but destructive, and he transforms it into something that gives life. The clearest symbol of this is Christ on the cross. It's Jesus in his death taking on all of the worst of us, all of our brokenness and sin, our rage and anger and greed and lust, all of that stuff taken on himself and reprocessed into a gift of grace. Our poop recycled into something that gives us life. Pastor Brian Zahn says it this way in his book, Beauty Will Save the World. 
He says, on the cross, Jesus absorbed our hate and hostility, our vengeance and violence into his own body and recycled it into love and forgiveness. By his wounds, we are healed. By this beauty, we are saved. This is what the host is like. He is one who reprocesses, who recycles our destructive poop and turns it into life-giving grace. And as people who are made in God's image, we are made to do the same thing. We are, in a sense, omniprocessors, people who find life as we join God in his work of entering into what is destructive and turning out grace and love. We are both receivers and givers of grace. It's not one or the other, it's both. The Apostle Paul says it this way in uh, 2 Corinthians. He writes, This means that anyone who belongs to Christ has become a new person. The old life is gone, a new life has begun, and all of this is a gift from God, who brought us back to himself through Christ. And God has given us this task of reconciling people to him. For God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, no longer counting people's sins against them, and he gave us this wonderful message of reconciliation. So we are Christ's ambassadors, or God's omniprocessors, Christ's omniprocessors, whatever you want to say. God is making his appeal through us. We speak for Christ when we plead, come back to God. For God made Christ, who never sinned, to be the offering for our sins so that we could be made right with God through Christ. This is the nature of the host, of the party planner. This is what he does. And this is the life we are invited into, to find life as we become people who enter into a world that is broken and in which there are many destructive things. And we learn to be channels of grace in the midst of a world full of poop. And as counterintuitive as it sounds, the first step for all of us is recognizing our need for grace. It's recognizing our dependence on God to recycle our mess and to channel life into us. Because if, if, you don't, if you don't recognize your need for grace, it's, it's really difficult, if not impossible, to offer it to anyone else. Recognizing our need for grace presses us into being humble, into recognizing our neediness and our inability of, uh, to just kind of fix ourselves. It requires that we surrender the facade of independence and acknowledge our dependence on our Creator. But it's only when we do that, it's only when we accept our need for grace that we can actually offer grace to others. And as we do, we enter into what God is like, one who freely gives grace, even when what we're given from those around us feels like poop. So the receiver becomes the giver. When we are rejected, we offer forgiveness. When we're slandered, we speak kindness. And when we're hurt, we offer comfort. This is the call of living in the way of Jesus. And this isn't easy. It can be really difficult, which is why it presses us to continue to go back to our creator looking for the grace that he offers. What 
what we need so that we can continue to live as those who offer grace to others. And for some of you, um, I know this has been a, a tough season coming through Christmas and New Year's. And there has been a, you know, for my time, you know, kind of being a part of this community over the last decade or so, I don't know that I remember a time when so many people have experienced the, the challenges that are happening in many people's lives now. And in the midst of that, we're still invited to be people who both deeply depend on God's grace and learn how to offer grace to others. There's this passage again in 2 Corinthians where Paul talks about experiencing troubles. And he says, he, Christ, comforts us in our troubles so that we can comfort others. When they are troubled, we are able to give them the same comfort God has given us. And sometimes that is interpreted as like God, God lets bad things happen to us so that we can comfort other people. And I don't think it's that at all. I think it actually points less to, oh, God makes bad things happen so that you learn how to comfort people, and more to, in the midst of all the brokenness and poop that we face in life, God's nature is one who is regularly bringing life in the midst of that. That is, that is resurrection. That in the midst of the death that we experience, the pain and the struggle, God is still able to bring life in us and through us to others. And you know this if you've ever gone through something painful. There's, not, there's nothing quite like experiencing pain and sitting with someone who can say, I don't know exactly what you're going through, but I've been through something similar. And it's in those moments that you see the resurrection that God brings in those situations. That even in the midst of things that feel so destructive and painful, life can come for us and for others. This is the economy of God. God is generous to us, and as God is generous to us, we don't simply accumulate it and stick it places to save it for later, but we turn around and we give it out to others. And in so doing, we receive more. This is how it works. The, giver, uh, the receiver becomes the giver who receives and gives and receives and gives. And in so we find life. And this is our hope for our community this year. As we enter into the year and as we think about how might God be inviting us to be a light in our broader community. What does it look like for us as Koinos Church to be an omni-processor? Not to kind of dig our heels in against those evil things out there, but to kind of jump in the fray and be channels of God's grace and love in the midst of things that can sometimes feel poopy. So my prayer, our prayer, our hope, is that we would enter into that together, learning together how to more deeply receive God's grace in our lives and more courageously offer grace to others. All right, well, at the end of every Sunday, we try to take some time to interact a little bit. We want to give some space for you to ask some questions, uh, what we'll do is, uh, Andrew's got a mic, and if you have something that's on your mind, something from the, the talk, 
stick your hand up and we'll interact around a little bit. Uh, it can be a question, it can be just a thought that came to you that's related, or if you have a challenge you want to throw out, feel free. Maybe you disagree with something I said. Uh, if you don't feel comfortable putting your hand up and talking in front of everyone, there's also a number on the back of the bulletin. You can text that number, and we'll respond to as many of those as we can anonymously. All right, so uh, let's talk. Who has questions? Throw your hand up. Andrew will come to you. Better not be about engineering and omniprocessors. I got nothing for you there. Now, my only question, and you kind of touched on it at the end, but you mentioned in the beginning with that kind of like interpretation of Isaiah where some people in Jesus' time kind of assumed that the Jewish people were like God's favored people. And I feel like throughout a lot of history, Christians have kind of replaced that with, well, now we're God's favored people. Mm -hmm. And I've even had people ask me that, like, so does God just like Christians better? So can you kind of comment on that, especially with, like, anti-Semitism still being a thing? Like, does God have a favored people? Are Christians God favored people? Mm. Is God does not work that way? Like, what would you say to that? Yeah. It's a great question. Uh, I, I think baked into the parable is the sense that God, the party is for all that will respond. Um, that God's banquet, that God's presence is for all those who will say yes to God's invitation. Um, and I think even chronologically as you look at it, there's a way in which the, the Jewish folks represent kind of that first group of people. Um, and I think Jesus is challenging some of them. Obviously, Jesus himself was Jewish. Many of the early followers of Jesus were Jewish. Um, but the Jewish leaders who kind of assumed they were, you know, God's favored were kind of not very subtly represented in that first, those, that first group of people who rejected that. Um, but I think that the great thing about parables is they're fairly flexible and they can work with whatever people happen to think they're so good that God likes them best. We kind of fit fairly in that first category. And the next two categories are all of those who will depend on God's grace because they recognize that most of what I can produce from myself, absent of God, is largely poop. Um, so I don't know, if I, hopefully that answers. And saying poop a lot up here is, it just feels very juvenile, I get that. Um, I'm not sure of a better word to say in, in this setting that would just go well, so I'm just going to stick with poop, and you can giggle, and your, your children can giggle, and that's great. Um, good question. Any other, other questions, thoughts? Give it about five more seconds, see if there's anybody waiting. No, I guess we covered all the bases. All right. Well, um, if you have anything else you'd like to add or any questions you'd like to ask, I'd be happy to talk with you out back as you head out this morning. Let me pray for us as the band comes forward and leads us in a final song. Father, um, I am so grateful that you are one who recycles anger into grace. And I confess that I am often not that. And so I ask that you would be at work in me and in us together as individuals and as a community, that we would increasingly become people who reflect 
your character, that we would increasingly become people who depend deeply on your grace and offer that grace to others. Even when um, what we're given is something that feels destructive or wasteful, would you help us to be people who respond with grace, who recycle anger into grace? And as we do so, might we know you more deeply and might others see you more clearly in us. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.